1: This is Father Mark Bulos with The Bible as Literature podcast. If any human ability can be said to manifest the power of God, it is our ability to speak. When we speak words, there are only two possibilities. One, that we are saying something informed and useful, meaning we teach something, or two, that our speech is uninformed and unhelpful and therefore destructive. For the biblical tradition, there is no middle ground on this point. When you speak, you are responsible for teaching. Moreover, in the sight of God, when you teach, you had better know what you are talking about. That's why in Matthew, the love of God's law precedes the love of neighbor. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 34 to 40. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos,
0: And this is Dr. Richard Benton.
1: And you are listening to episode 359 of the Bible as Literature podcast. I happened to be reading an article in Newsweek about a couple that put a cross on their lawn in celebration of the Feast of the Nativity, and they were fined. And when I saw this headline, I thought, oh, here we go again, culture wars, One group of people complaining that they're being persecuted and another group of people lecturing us about liberal values. But that's not what I found, Rich. There were Christians on the board of the association that manages the homes in this development who said that as devout Christians, they could not understand why someone would decorate for Christmas using a cross. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and they asked for biblical evidence that there's any association between the cross and the nativity, and that if this young couple could show from Scripture that there's a connection, then I guess it would be okay. But otherwise, please don't disrupt our desire to be merry with all this uncomfortable news about the crucifixion. <laughs>
0: I think in this description of Jesus in Jerusalem, this is exactly what he's dealing with because we have Sadducees with one interpretation and we have Pharisees with one interpretation. And you know that if the Herodians have power, they're going to figure out how to fine the Sadducee or the Pharisee for having the wrong teaching. Oh, it seems, Jesus, you're putting the emphasis on the wrong thing. Why do you keep talking about the crucifixion? You know, when Jeremiah wanted to talk about the destruction of Jerusalem, He got kicked out of the city. This is an old story about how Christians want to feel merry, and they want to have a good teaching, and they want to feel good. So they'll go and they'll even look through Scripture to find out how you're wrong. But once they get the power of the state, the power of the sword, the power of the empire, watch out. A Christian empire is an empire through and through. If you look at the Gospel book on the altar table—
1: in the Eastern tradition. On one cover, which is the front cover, you have the icon of the crucifixion. And on the back cover of the book, you have the icon of the resurrection. And on either side, these icons are adorned either by the prophets or the four evangelists. But the point is that the cross and the resurrection are two sides of the same coin. Both are connected to judgment both are uncomfortable, and the Nativity heralds the coming judgment of the cross and the resurrection. It's amazing to me how the Sadducees and the Christians who sit on the governing board of that association protecting their property, it's amazing to me how all these centuries later, the Sadducees still don't want to hear about the judgment. They don't want to understand the birth of this little child as portending their doom. They would rather be Mary. But thankfully, Scripture is not good news. It's just news. So yes, Jesus is born. <laughs> what that means for you, we'll find out. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. And I want to say, parenthetically, Richard, to hold a meeting of the association to protect the value of their property and the happiness in their neighborhood.
0: This is so much more complicated here. At least in that neighborhood, we only had two views. We had the religious board and we had the people with a cross in their lawn. Here we've got the Pharisees and Sadducees who are already arguing with each other. And now Jesus is going to come in. Now the Pharisees were put to shame by Jesus before, but then he put the Pharisees enemies, the Sadducees, to shame. So now the Pharisees have to test, is our enemy's enemy, our friend? And this is where the Pharisees are going to try to test Jesus to see what side he's on. Everyone's trying to figure out who Jerusalem belongs to. Herod came from the Edomites, the sons of Esau, the brother of Jacob, traditional enemies of the Jews. Early on when the Roman Empire came in, Jewish leaders converted the Edomites to Judaism. By putting someone from among the Edomites in power, it was a Jewish power in Jerusalem, but with the thumb in the eye of the Judahites. So the Herodians counted completely on the Romans because that's what put them in power. Sadducees counted on Rome because they owned the temple, and the temple continued to function according to the good graces of the Roman Empire. Pharisees were quite different, though, because they did not function with the Jerusalem temple at the center, but with the teaching at the center, and that's why it was easier for them to go out to the countryside and go and teach in the synagogues. The synagogue became the center because it was about the teaching and not about the sacrifices themselves. The Pharisees and Sadducees were at each other's throats because of this. There are all these different strains in Jerusalem, and they're all looking for justification for their existence to get one step above the other one. And they're trying to use Jesus for this. So they throw at him these litmus tests between these different groups to figure out what side he falls on. And Jesus never falls for it, because Matthew wants to assure us that Jesus is only on the side of Scripture, even if that sets him against every single other group in Jerusalem, Roman, Sadducee, Pharisee, Herodian, Jesus his own side.
1: The reason Jesus never falls for it is because Jesus, who himself was preached by Paul the Pharisee, is preached in a way that fulfills the claim of the Pharisees that they want the teaching to be at the center. That's why in the Pauline school, which is the school of the New Testament, we've explained this many times. And I know it's difficult, it takes a while to sink in because you think that Galatians came after Matthew, but Galatians came before, even though in the canonical order it comes after. Matthew is expressing Galatians. Paul preached Jesus in such a way that Paul was not the center of the story. Jesus is the center of the story. And Jesus, who carries the teaching in the story, embodies the story for those who hear the gospel. Now, don't fall into this silly Platonism where we say Jesus is the gospel. That's incorrect. Jesus was a man. He wasn't a book. In the story of the gospel, he carried the teaching. But Jesus increases in the gospel and Paul decreases. Christians don't follow Paul, they follow Jesus. So it's just an important thing to call out in the light of that very helpful context you provided, Richard, so that our listeners can really begin to connect the dots. When we say that the Pharisees wrote the New Testament, we're talking about the school of Paul who was not only a Pharisee, but a Benjaminite which was a warlike tribe. So Paul is really an aggressive teacher from the Pharisaic school that did not allow the Pharisees to win this argument in the story.
0: This is why when I read about Christians who go to Washington to pray with officials, with senators, with congresspeople, this sort of thing, when people speak on behalf of, of politicians and call themselves Christians. I cannot square that with the way that Jesus speaks about Jerusalem and to the people of Jerusalem. To the Sadducees, Jesus uses Scripture to undermine Sadducees. To the Pharisees, he uses Scripture to undermine Pharisees. To Herodians, he uses Scripture to undermine Herodians. To his own disciples, he's going to use Scripture to undermine his own disciples. The only way you know that you have a Christian in Washington is if he uses Scripture to undermine Democrats and undermine Republicans and to undermine every single candidate for president and every single candidate for Supreme Court and every single candidate for FDA. The way that Jesus functions is to oppose any human power— against Scripture. Scripture undermines you, and as soon as you think that now it's time for you to enact your HUD proposals, the Christian is going to show how you are illegitimate, and that it is only God who provides homes for the poor, not you and your policies. Jesus, on every single one of these discussions in Jerusalem, undermines authority. If you want to say that you are Christian and that you read Scripture like Jesus, and then you turn around and support one politician over another politician, you've now betrayed what Jesus is doing here in Jerusalem in these passages.
1: Not only is it about undermining all of those positions, but of the utmost importance, undermining first and foremost and most aggressively your position— your affiliation, your group. That is why very soon in Matthew we will hear the beautiful rhetoric of Matthew in which he artfully condemns the Pharisees and the scribes. That should signal to you that the Pauline school wants to make sure that they decrease so that Jesus can increase in the fulfillment of the crucifixion and the resurrection in the story. So it's a kind of self emasculation. You will never hear Richard or myself brag about our church. It makes me physically uncomfortable when people talk about how wonderful their church is, because it goes against scripture. Why can't you just be satisfied in your church and preach the gospel? If you like your church, fine, enjoy it. I don't know that I could go to church anywhere else but the church in which I was raised and be content. But that doesn't mean that I'm not judged and my church isn't judged. And if I'm scriptural, from my perspective, my church is judged the most harshly of all the churches and all the communions and all of the traditions on the earth. And if I were to brag about my church, I'm lifting something up in place of Jesus Christ and I am betraying the Pauline school And I won't do it. If I have a criticism of Christianity, I'm going to level that criticism first and foremost by accepting the judgment against me. That is the biblical school. And I trust the teaching of the Bible. Whether or not I think it makes sense doesn't matter. This is what the teaching is. This is the teaching that brought the Roman Empire to its knees. And I trust God that it can bring contemporary consumerism and militarism to its knees also. I have no doubt that if God wants to humble us, he can and will do so. One of them, a lawyer asked him a question, testing him, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Here, once again, the technocrat, the lawyer, is trying to set up a logical trap. He knows, what all of us know, Leviticus is a long book. Deuteronomy is a long book with lots of regulations. Exodus has all kinds of details about what you should do, how you should construct the temple, and so on and so forth. So tell me, of all these regulations, which is the greatest? But the very question which marvels in the imagined quagmire of the Pentateuch demonstrates, once again, their ignorance of the Pentateuch because we all
0: know what Leviticus says, and Jesus will remind them in just a moment. This translation, lawyer, I think is interesting because the word is nomikos, which comes clearly from the word nomos, which means law, so this is someone who specializes in law. It's different than a scribe. It's his job to help when people are trying to figure out how to act that he's someone you would address with this question of, okay, my wife wants me to do this, but I want to do that. What's the correct way to act? My neighbor says that he owns this piece of land, but I think I own this piece of land. Help us figure out what to do in this circumstance. This is what he's there to do. It's He doesn't explicitly call him a judge, but he's a specialist in the law. So he's supposed to know this scripture, the nomos. Nomos is what Paul uses when he talks about Torah. So he is a specialist in Torah in order to help make these decisions for people. He addresses Jesus as Didaskala, which means teacher. It's significant that a lawyer who's a specialist in the law, he's in applied scripture. Jesus is an expert in the scripture itself. So we see a pecking order here. Understanding what scripture is saying comes first. And then applying it correctly comes second, because if you're applying it without understanding it, I mean, you and I were talking, Father, you know, people who say, well, I don't think we should understand scripture like this, because I was reading this one guy who said that we should understand scripture like that, and he sounds good. As my father, may he rest in peace, would say,
1: your opinion and 50 cents won't pay for my coffee. Someone who comes to me to challenge what I said about scripture by quoting some other author doesn't know what they're talking about. I don't want to hear what you think the other guy said. I want to know what you have to say based on what you know. And nine times out of 10, they come up empty because they're not looking at scripture. They're like the Sadducees in the story.
0: And if they approach and they say didaskale, hopefully they're there to listen. If they're calling you teacher, then their job is to be quiet and take notes. When he approaches, he sets this tone that Jesus is on the level of teacher and the lawyer is on the level of applying and making decisions based on that. So the one who knows scripture does not need the nomikos.
1: And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. So he begins with Deuteronomy and he will soon end with Leviticus, which is a really powerful knockout punch. He's surrounding you with these two weighty books, which are intense in the way they lay out in great detail all of the commandments of the law. And Deuteronomy is so precarious because that's the great book in which we learn that the curse of disobedience, the curse of the law, is death. So we're not messing around. And Jesus is saying, you don't even know this book, which means you are risking your own death. It's to your peril that you don't know what Deuteronomy says. Because if you really knew Deuteronomy, you would know that everything in Deuteronomy hinges on the love of God's instruction. When he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind— heart and mind are redundant, and they sandwich soul, which refers to your life, which means the point of your life is to be completely invested mentally in the study of God's law. It's exactly what you said a moment ago, Richard. You have to begin by first understanding, which means that your whole intellect has to reorient your soul which is your life towards the singular purpose of understanding God's law the love of neighbor comes second because you don't know how to love until you first have learned what God said and this is the ultimate condemnation of the Sadducees and it's the great shame of the lawyer and of the Pharisees because the Pharisees supposedly elevate the teaching above all else and they don't know it and the lawyer is supposed to be an expert, and he's just an American anti-intellectual who thinks the experts are dumb. So he's trying to trap Jesus with his third-rate scholarship. It's a big scam, because at the end of the day, you have to know what you're talking about, or you
0: should not be allowed to speak. The way that Matthew presents this, this scene, as you say, Father, this showdown between the nomikos and Jesus... Is this beautiful crescendo after all of these parables and teachings throughout these chapters? You had the parable of the vineyard, the parable of the wedding feast, you had whether you can pay taxes to Caesar or not, you have this discussion about the resurrection. And then the Nomiko says, Okay, what's the greatest commandment? It's the commandment that all of these revolve around love the Lord your God with your entirety. Not only does in the Greek He repeat the same phraseology, but it's all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all, 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 Oli, Oli, Oli. This is repeated every time. That's the solution to every single one of these other problems he's faced. Okay, what do we do about this vineyard? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Okay, let's talk about the wedding feast. Who gets in and who gets out and what's the deal with the garment? Hold on a second. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Another question. The taxes to see. Okay, hold on. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Resurrection, heart, soul, strength. This is the solution to all these other questions. Who does Jerusalem belong to? Hold on a second. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Who should I vote for? Love the Lord your God. Which religion should I be? Love the Lord your God. What should I do about giving to the poor? Love the Lord your God. What about Christmas? Do we put up a cross or do we put up a snowman? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. This is the solution. Jesus is actually making the job of the Nomi Coast very easy. Because when somebody comes to him with a question of how to do something, Jesus gives them the words, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. This is the solution to all these different problems. And Father, I'm really happy you mentioned these three aspects because it's not about loving him with your heart. It's about taking the action of understanding God's will, loving that will, and carrying it out. Verse
1: 37, Rich, is a fancy way of saying the solution is to read the Bible again, just keep reading. What Jesus is doing is what any good professor would do when a student comes with a dumb question. The professor would say, you don't know the material, so your question is useless. Don't ask me your stupid question. Go back and read the text again. And keep reading it until you have the right question. But in the case of Scripture, if you keep reading it, you won't end with a question, you'll end with an action which brings us to the conclusion of this section. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Again, if you truly love the Lord your God with all your heart, which is the seed of reason, with all your soul, which is your very life, and with all your mind, your intellect, which is connected to your kardia, your heart. Again, it's a sandwich where you have life surrounded by the pursuit of understanding to form your mind and to change your thinking so that your life is oriented towards God's wisdom. If you are committed to that, and you do it when you wake up in the morning, when you leave your house, when you walk along the way, before you go to sleep in the evening, in the midnight watches, if you meditate upon it, it will produce verse 39. And you won't have any questions. You will just know what to do, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. This is where scripture shortcuts philosophy and theology. It's not about forming good questions. It's about setting questions aside and becoming men and women of action whose single purpose is the care for the neighbor. So it's a way of condemning the verbosity of the nomikos who just wants to blab about his technocracy in order to self-justify and feel good about how smart he is. And the whole discussion is nonsense.
0: This reminds me of a discussion you and I were having this week, Father, about how some people misunderstand your presentation for OCLI about what it means to be a thulos, a slave, because Americans often think—I mean, actually, most Americans always think—that a person is a person in and of themselves, and that you can be a thulos in and of yourself, which, of course, makes no sense. How can you be a slave— By yourself, because every slave is owned by somebody. There have been discussions about, you know, well, is thulos slave really a good word because it just makes people sound passive? No, it doesn't mean they're passive. I mean, if you're a businessman who owns a slave and your slave is passive, you sell him, get him off the books because he's not producing for you. I mean, this is what a slave is you're simply there. To produce for your master. You don't have a will of your own, but that doesn't mean you don't take action. And in these laws, there is always an object of love. Jesus doesn't say the first commandment is to love. No. He says your first is to love God and your second is to love your neighbor. Now, what's interesting is when he says love your neighbor as yourself, it means there's only two ranks in this army there's God. And then there's everyone else. You are not to love anyone more or less than anyone else, including you. So everyone is at the same level and you serve them all with love because now you are serving everyone. So this is the second commandment. The first commandment solved all the other problems that we had in the past couple chapters. And this second one is a freebie for the Nomikos. Because, you know, the Nomikos only asked for one commandment, right? So Jesus kind of threw him a little extra one. Okay, Nomikos, for all the other ones you can't solve, use this one and it will solve every single problem you have ever. Because as long as everyone is serving the Lord their God, It's going to offend people, especially Americans, when I equate service with love. But I'll tell you what, in my house, if I tell my wife I love her, and every time she has to take out the trash by herself, she's going to say, would you stop telling me you love me because I need someone to take the trash out. So somehow my wife thinks that love and action have something to do with each other, and I don't think my wife is misled in any way. I think she's helping me to learn what these commandments actually mean. There is an object of love. If I tell her I love her in my heart, she's not going to care. It's irrelevant, It's non-functional. The only functional love is one that serves. And once you're serving God and all the people, you've done it. This is what it means to be a thulos, a slave. You are there to serve all. There's no thulos without
1: a neighbor. And I have bad news for the Sadducees, for Thomas Jefferson, and for the devout Christians on the board of the Homeowners Association. Matthew does not say that happiness is the sum of the law and the prophets. (laughs) He does not say that the point of the birth of Jesus is to be Mary, and on that rests all the law and the prophets. That's not what he says. Jesus, in the Gospel of Matthew, explains that the love of the other is the point of everything. And as far as I can tell, you can't love your neighbor as an individual. You can only love your neighbor if you're part of a body, of a community, of a flock. And ultimately, the downfall of the West will be our ideological rejection of the body in favor of the individual. It corrupts the church. It corrupts our civic engagement, it corrupts education, it corrupts our understanding of ourselves and each other, it separates us from each other, and it will be our downfall, whether it's today in 10 years or a 100 years. If you look at every terrible event in history, usually about a century before intellectuals were already explaining what was going to happen because you can identify the seeds of destruction in any civilization long before they come fully to fruition. And as sure as I'm talking to my friend Richard, individualism will be our undoing. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton.
0: Thank you, Father. You've just
1: heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening.
0: The Bible as literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.